With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Right, well, we'd like to be sitting here only discussing what happened on the pitch this week. Instead, there was another unsavory incident at Stamford Bridge. I've been looking at what happened and the environment in which football allowed it to happen. On Sunday, Raheem Sterling posted two photographs to Instagram. In his caption, he said he just had to laugh when he was targeted by alleged racist abuse from the stands. It's been a huge talking point this week, especially after a banana skin was thrown towards Arsenal's Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. However, as former City defender Nader Manua told us, racist abuse isn't a new thing. This stuff goes on all the time, like one of my friends and old City players, Shailen Logan, I think he's received it a few times up in Scotland playing for Aberdeen. And when you look at it and you think of where we are in society, it just, it seems so wrong. But then the flip side of it is, I think things are still being said, but I think more people know now that it's wrong, yet still they have those views and they're more than willing to share it in the open forum, whether it's in a stadium, whether it's online, whether it's face to face, which is a, you know, I think that's the biggest problem. Sterling's post pointed the finger at the press who have reported similar stories on white and black players differently for a long time. Adam Keyworth is a City fan who's been keeping track of the negative reporting around Sterling in a thread on Twitter. There was something in the press that day about Sterling and I thought I'll tweet about this. But then going back through some other stories that I think I'd tweeted about before, I just thought, all right, I'll put a few of these together. And then as I put two or three together, I thought, Christ, this is really depressing. There's... I think there was about 15 just in, in one go. The language in those sorts of stories has helped to create an environment where incidents like Saturdays can happen. Leon Mann founded BCOMS, the black collective of media in sport. I have seen over the years the language used towards black footballers is all around physicality. You know, there's a real emphasis on physicality, on speed, strength. However, there's never really any talk about the thoughts the cleverness. It's all about that physicality, that the, 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 the raw strength. Raw is a word that's used quite a lot. And also there's a, a real questioning of attitude and commitment that seems to be applied to black players constantly um, in a way that I don't believe it's applied to white footballers. He adds that it was obvious with how a previous City great was talked about as well. I know Yaya Toure and I think he's a good example here. He's always been de- described as the beast. Um, I think to anyone who watches him play, I mean, he's more like a, a ballerina in terms of um, the way he actually caresses the ball. He sees angles others don't. And he's an artist on the pitch. Of course, he has those incredible runs in his armory, but that involves skill, the way he's moving his feet, this balance. All of those elements seem to have not been given, you know, the same prominence in commentary. And Nader Manua explains how that can affect what people think of players. When you think about the way that things can be portrayed, especially with the thing that Raheem highlighted with uh, Tolzin and with Phil, it seems like Tolzin, his career is already being judged and criticised before it's even begun. And that's just through certain ways that language can be used. And I think it's more troubling for me when someone doesn't know that they're doing it in the way that they write headlines because they're basically 
fueling something which you know it doesn't really affect them but it greatly affects someone who shouldn't be getting affected by such a negative stereotype he says those preconceptions can then consistently filter through into reports for some people when it came to ratings, some people will start from an eight and if they play badly drop to a seven if they play well they go up to a nine whereas for other people they start at zero people get treated one way and someone else that probably deserves the same treatment will be treated another. Anua also says that sort of bias can seep into punditry, especially when experts are asked to comment on matches that they haven't seen. Adam Keyworth thinks there could be subconscious problems too. I'm not in any place to say whether it's done in a purposeful way, that these people who are writing these dogs articles on Sterling are being racist because they mean to be, or whether it's just because they don't know they are being, and they see them as fair game, and that's part of the issue. The makeup of the newsroom could also be a contributing factor. Leon Mann explains how important a range of backgrounds can be when it comes to deciding the news agenda. My feeling is, from experience and from knowing the dynamic um, across the media, that there will be a bunch of white men making decisions around the sensitivities in communities they are not part of, by having greater diversity in those newsrooms where those decisions are made, we'll have more thorough decisions. And that might mean that those same decisions are made, but they will do that knowing the consequences of their actions. Up to this point, Sterling had remained silent about the criticism he's had in the press and from the stands. The only fans who could have a negative reaction to him are Liverpool's, since he left to join a rival in 2015. But for a good 18-month spell, the winger was abused at every away ground in the country. Adam Keyworth wonders why it's taken an incident like this one for there to be a realisation that something is wrong. The fact that it's taken something so horrific as to what's seemingly happened on Saturday to make certain members of the press come out and say this is terrible and all, all of these comments, it's... All I think is, where have you been for the last two years? Their colleagues have been at it for two well, the two last years have been the worst, but they've been at it since he left Liverpool. The way that image of Sterling has been built up across both print and broadcast media then causes a problem. Leon Mann explains. The vast, vast majority, 99.9% .9 of people who have interactions with Raheem Sterling, it will be through the media. So the media have a huge, huge role in terms of how people view Raheem Sterling in terms of how they feel about Raheem Sterling and in terms of how they act and behave towards Raheem Sterling. So it's, it's vital really that it is a true representation. That's got to be at the heart of everything the media does. It's about truth. Sterling's been praised both for his statements and his reaction to the Chelsea fans on the day, but Neda Manua believes it's a one-way street. He is going to lose more than those fans are going to lose if he reacts to it even though the things that have been said to him are very unfair, it's not right, you know, it's, 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 some of it's allegedly it's discrimination, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's horrible. But if he was to say anything back, he'd be getting charged by the FA, the PFA would be speaking to him, supporters' trust and stuff like that would be getting at him, and his reputation would be one which, it, it, unfortunately for him, would be far worse, so he has to just accept it. This is football journalist Greg Johnson. He says the fact that Sterling's expected not to react in the face of something so abhorrent doesn't reflect well either. I always expect in black athletes who suffer racism to turn your cheek and be the bigger man. You're now in the acceptable scope of responses they can, and in, in a way denying them their emotions. It shouldn't be on the person who's the victim to 
come out and be the bigger man. Though he does suggest a solution. We stop giving people like me and Piers Morgan and people that aren't affected by these things the platform to say things and we, we, we give it to people who have been affected by this. And I'm not saying Sterling because he's already carrying enough by himself, but let's give the microphone to people who are affected by this. The lack of black and ethnic minority voices in sports journalism is a real problem, and if we're being honest, it's a problem we face here on the Blue Moon Podcast too. In the 10 years we've done the show, the vast majority of the people who've spoken on it have been white. When it comes to looking ahead to the future, Leon Mann thinks the situation isn't hopeless though. Football fans really led the change in um, addressing racism in football. And that's not often given the credit that is due. It was football fans who started turning around to each other and saying, shut up, you're not part of my club. We need that culture to continue. We need people to be brave, but we need people to be supported. Stewards have a job. Clubs have a huge responsibility and the authorities do too. But it's clear there's still a long way to go. This last few weeks has highlighted the work that needs to be done to change attitudes. And Nader Manua explains an uncomfortable truth about why this isn't a new story across football grounds. If you had a good friend and you said something to them which offended them, they'll tell you that they're offended and they'll probably ask you to never say it again. And if you saw that it really hurt them, you probably wouldn't say it again because you cared. So then it begs the question, when people come out and say that what you're doing is wrong in terms of, of race perspective, why does it keep coming back still? And the bottom line is it's because people overall don't really care. And whether it's subtle racism or blatantly obvious racism, they don't care. Raheem Sterling deserves credit for speaking out, but he shouldn't have to speak out, nor should he have to maintain a dignified silence. If there's one thing that's clear from the recent incidents, it's time to have a long, hard look at how we deal with racism in both football and society, and how we report on non-white players. It's time to change. Hi, this is Sean Gooder, and you're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. A look there at the latest racist incident in football. And just before we move on, I just want to uh, to, to listen to what Nader Manua said. Not all of his uh, of his interview went into that uh, that piece. This is what Anua told us about his experience of growing up in Manchester. I think being being raised in Manchester in the nineties, I did experience a few things. A few, my whole family did because we, you know, we came from we came from Nigeria and. We were, at the time, I think one of the very few, if not the only black family that was in Mars Platting around that time. So our, people saw us as being very different and they treated us as being very different almost from the get-go and throughout my entire time there. And it, it, it wasn't nice, to be honest. It was a tough time, especially because we were trying to adapt to a new country and people just weren't really willing to help us achieve that. Obviously, some people were, but I'll be honest, the vast majority weren't. And then time passed and I'd go and... I joined Man City's academy when I was 10 and we played in a few international tournaments and some of the places that you'd go and some of the countries and some of the teams that you'd see, some of them never couldn't speak a word of English except for to be able to swear at you or to say like an N-word to me. And it was strange because I just thought to myself like, what is, what is this? Is this, is this what I am? Is this what the world is? And in fairness, it, it got better over time. And I think a lot of that was because people's voices started to be heard now. You know, if someone said they were offended, you know, people and the authorities and so on started to finally try and get behind them and support them instead of ridiculing them. Because it's hard, to, it's, a lot of the time it's hard to be the minority. Trying to, in a group of 10, 
one or two people saying something, you know, people will listen to what you're going to say, but the fact is the eight are the ones who are going to make the decisions. Whereas now I feel like more people are going to listen and understand and, you know, pay attention as such. Check out exclusive City interviews on our website, bluemoonpodcast.com. Nader Manua talking about his growing up in Manchester. Now, Leon, um, I mean, we, we, we can't not talk about this incident for, for Raheem Sterling this week. Um, first off, what, what are your experiences when it comes to, to kind of racism and, and the game of football? Um, I've, I've had it, um, as I would suggest most, if not all, other black players or um, players of uh, um, ethnicity. I've had in the game. Um, my first um, experience of it was playing for my town team, Trafford Boys. Uh, I was only 30 at the time and um, I was called a, a name by a boy. I had no idea what it was he'd called me, so I asked him what it was and he had no idea himself and the game just carried on. And uh, yeah, I had it in, in my professional career as well from players and from, from fans of the, the opposite, um, you know, the opposite club we were playing against. So... Um, <sighs> My experience, I used to kind of um, let it roll off my back. That was my way of dealing with it. Um, and, you know, Raheem's kind of adopted the same uh, kind of thing. Um, obviously, he's come out and said what he said on Instagram um, the other day because, let's be honest, there is... I mean, I've seen it for years and I've, I've had conversations with, with other people about it. You can see there is a, dis- a difference the way the press reports on black players to the way it does on white players. Um, that's just a fact, and if anyone's going to tell me any different, then I want to see proof because I've got plenty of proof. The other um, way to, to support my claim. What I mean, what challenges do black players face when it comes? Because I mean, I, I'll be honest with you, I'm holding my hands up. I'm a, I'm, I'm a, a white man, so I don't I don't face mm, these challenges. Yeah. Um, preconceptions, um, you know, for, from as as long as I can remember, there's a preconception that black players are lazy, and you've got to work them harder than you have with other people, and. I remember my dad telling me, you know, as a as a black man going into you know football, you're gonna to have to be twice as good as as your white counterparts, and you're gonna to have to work twice as harder. Um, so it's been there, you know, as as long as I can remember. Um, and it it's hard because you don't want to be seen with as the guy in the changing room with a chip on your shoulder, which has been said many a time. But at the same time, you think, well. If I can see it, why can't you? You can't just uh, let it slide either, can you? can't just you? let it slide. But there is that that sort of... I think it's just an understanding, um, you know, of, of what the player's actually going through at the time. You know, if you're being... Uh, you know, having racial abuse hurled at you um, week in, week out, then, you know, you're not going to go home feeling very good about yourself. Have we been complacent about tackling it, do you think? <sighs> um, complacent, maybe... Um, I would go as far as saying neglectful. Um, <laughs> yeah, I would go as far as saying neglectful. Uh, yeah, we have uh, you know kick it out and show races in the red card, but they happen on a day. The players wear a t-shirt, they wave a couple of flags, and then it's over. Um, what needs to happen? Uh, this is this is um, what it is for me. Um, if someone feels comfortable that they can spout racial abuse at somebody, whether it be on the pitch or whether it be from the stand, if someone feels comfortable then the conditions are right for them to feel comfortable. If you make the conditions that they feel uncomfortable doing that, then it's going to stop, you know? And that doesn't mean we eradicate racism because it just happens behind closed doors then. But what it does um, what does happen is it doesn't happen in public. People aren't, you know, things that happen, the, the thing that happened to Raheem on Saturday doesn't happen 
or if it does happen, they're ejected straight away. So what needs to happen, there has to be a culture of, um, you know, uh, zero tolerance. And also, as I say, the press have got a big responsibility. People you keep saying that, you know, the way it's reported doesn't have anything to do with it. Well, it does. Um, and if you if you create or cultivate a culture of hate and, you know, um, prejudice, then that's going to fester. And it's, again, it's not just football, it's society. I wanted to ask Leon a quick question. Leon, what age did your parents give you the talk? Um, like- you know the talk that I'm talking about, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, Um I probably had that that kind of talk with my mum and my dad, or my and my granddad, um, probably at the, about the age of eight or nine. Okay, so it happens as early over there as it does here. Um, mm. Again, it has to be stressed that I'm a white dude talking about this, but I try to 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 be familiar with with the goings on, and I think it's nearly impossible to say that the climate isn't conducive to hate. I mean. I realize this probably isn't going to endear me to some people, but I'm going to say it anyway. I mean, you look no further than my country. Um, Hate crimes have gone up uh, since the induction of a certain person. Uh, Anti-Semitism is on the rise. You have more and more police here shooting unarmed black men and women. Uh, White folks with a million guns are talked down from the ledge over here, while guys like Stefan Clark are shot 21 times and then later found to be holding a damn cell phone. This is our lives. Um, and, and, you know, Leon mentioned those comments. I tried hitting up Jim Beglin about his comments uh, about Raheem Sterling, because he put out that tweet, oh, disgusting, you know, racist, zero Raheem Sterling. And I'm like, so, Jim, I assume that this tweet is going to be accompanied by apology to all the things you said about him. And I can remind you of these things if you need. And he's like, by all means, go ahead and remind me. So I showed him the tweet where he called Raheem greedy. I showed him the tweet where he called Raheem a locker room poison. I showed him the tweet where he said Raheem's move away from Liverpool. It was ignoble. Ignoble was the exact word that he used about a move, about a transfer. And he's criticizing the guy's agent when he wants to deflect some of it. And I'm like, well, that's the agent's job. So that's not really doing anything for me. But these criticisms, they're inherent. They are inherent to institutionalized racism. He brought up black players. They're seen as lazy. you got to work them harder. But white folks also see black players as people who owe them. Raheem Sterling owed Liverpool. Liverpool made Raheem Sterling. Not the years. Not the hours. Not the decades of blood, sweat, and tears that Raheem Sterling put into making his own footballing career a success. None of that made Raheem Sterling. It was Liverpool. And these types of comments are rooted in racism. And the thought that we own a black man and his future, but we wish well to folks like Milner or even Coutinho when they move on, like it's baffling to me that some people cannot see their own racism in tweets. It's just truly baffling to me. I think there's there's only one kind of real way to to finish this this discussion as well, Leon. I mean, I mean, it's it's all well and good us sitting here in the studio and and saying no, it's time that this is wrong. Something needs to be done. Um, what what do we do? Is it is it simply as much as as, as whenever you hear this stuff, is just say, hang on, this isn't on. That you can't say that. Yeah, you make it uncomfortable for people to act that way in public. You know, at the end of the day, again, if if you look at um, where these things happen, if you look at Saturday as a, as a if you isolate Saturday as an incident. There's three or four guys shouting abuse at Raheem Sterling. 
and there's actually no one around them telling them to stop or saying don't do that there's actually a black guy stood about three seats away just watching these guys hurl abuse at another black guy um, now I'm not saying he should have done something well, again it shouldn't, shouldn't uh, no, necessarily fall on his fall shoulders on yeah. him, but what I'm saying is he got to have felt uncomfortable now he may not have felt comfortable enough to say what are you doing or who do you think you're talking to kind of thing um, because you know the, the conditions inside the football ground are conducive to hate and abuse um, moving forward for me you've got to make it uncomfortable for, for racists and um, for people of, of um, a prejudicial um, slant you've got to make sure that they, if they are racist if they have racist views that's fine off you go you know don't come back to the football club you're not allowed at games and you, you, you know you're not what we deem as a supporter at this club it has to be that harsh you see um, people get fined more for I don't know um, a two-footed tackle, generally speaking. Well, or... take take the UA for example. On uh, was it Porto or Sporting Lisbon, where where yeah, Yaya Toure was was racially abused, mm-hmm. Mario Balotelli were racially abused, mm-hmm. and City were fined more for being late to the second half. Exactly. And you kind of saying if, if we're going to be serious about this problem, we mm-hmm. need to actually act like we're being serious yeah, about 100%. it. Hundred percent. And let's get let's let, you know let's be straight about it. It's, this isn't a football problem. This is a societal problem. Um, and this, you know, in society, we've got a, a culture at the minute that people feel comfortable in 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 saying or expressing their racist views and prejudicial views at the minute because you know we're, I'm allowed it's free speech. Of course you're allowed. Of course you're allowed. Um, but some of the stuff I read, some of the stuff I hear, some of the stuff I see, it's disgusting. You know, right. I wouldn't speak to another human being in that way, um, and I wouldn't think of a human, another human being in that way, and. We really do need to take a look at ourselves and say, what are, what are we doing here? Are we just paying lip service? Is it another moment um, for show races in the red card or another moment for kick it out to get involved and everything be swept under the carpet? And what I would say is uh, freedom of speech is not freedom of consequences as well. So exactly. uh, so you can you be be free to say what you want, but you don't uh, not absolve yeah. from the consequences. No, 